0: The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. So there are two words uh, that we're going to be talking a little bit about today. Cultural assimilation and cultural appropriation, right? So a cultural assimilation means if you were to go into a new culture and you were to start taking on that culture. And so if you were to move to China and you were to start celebrating the Chinese New Year, That would be cultural assimilation. You go in and you assimilate some of the culture. Cultural appropriation is when a new culture comes in and the old culture looks and it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. We want to do that or we want to be like that, right? An example of what that can look like is where I grew up in Michigan. So I grew up in a town called Pontiac and they called us Yak Town if they were in Detroit, right? So Pontiac is right next to Detroit and Detroit is a fairly rough city. In fact, for a long, long time, Detroit was the most dangerous city in the United States, and Pontiac looked a lot like Detroit. Uh, it was a very urban town as well, but it wasn't as dangerous and was not be considered, quote-unquote, as hard of a city to live in as it was in Detroit. However, Detroit people had a name for Pontiac people like myself, and they called it Yacktown. Because we were always talking smack, like we lived in as a hard of a place as in Detroit. But in reality, it was a lot softer. And then I moved to Troy, which is what I lovingly refer to as the desperate housewife community, right? So if you can imagine, just suburbs everywhere, right? And so it was even more of that. But this idea that cultures assimilate and appropriate back and forth is something that we see throughout history. And it's something that we also see in the church. So if you look throughout the history of the church, you see this multiple times, uh, one of the ways we see it, in fact, today we still see it, is when we celebrate Christmas, right? So we celebrate Christmas December 25th, but for the first 300-some years of the church, that isn't when we celebrated the birth of Christ. But what ended up happening was pagan society celebrated a lot of festivals around the winter solstice, which is December 21st. It's the longest night of the year. And typically what they would do during these winter solstices, as a way to celebrate but also to bring literal light into the community, they would have a festival around light, right? Around something to bring some amount of light to a very dark time, a very dark season. Well, the early church saw this happening in, in pagan societies, and they're like, you know what, we can use that idea and bring in the story of Christ, And so the church as a whole said, you know what, we're going to bring in the Christmas story, the light of the world coming, into the winter solstice, that way it would be easier for pagan society to assimilate, to get into the rhythm of what the church was up to. And to this day, we still celebrate Christmas at that time. A more modern way that you can look at Christian theology, and this I would say is probably less helpful than celebrating Jesus' birth around, you know, December 25th, would be angels and hallmark. Right? So you walk into Hallmark, and if you see angels, what do you see? These fat babies with diapers and wings, and you're like, huh, that's, that's interesting. right?" And in the culture's mind, though, that becomes what an angel is. And yet when you look throughout Scripture, you don't have these fat babies and diapers. You have the army of God. And in fact, whenever someone sees an angel, their first response is, please don't kill me right? Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to see a baby in a diaper floating around on wings, my first response would not be, oh my gosh, I'm about to die, right? And yet what's happened is that the church has allowed current culture to kind of narrate what an angel is to us. Well, when we're talking about our question today, and we've been looking at very simple childlike questions that have deeper truths, and the idea of what is heaven we've actually appropriated some culture into the church that isn't part of our original narrative, that isn't part of who our God is and what our God is trying to do here on earth. And what we find is that in the early church, there were a lot of Platonic thinkers. Now, Plato, student of Socrates, historical, uh, very intellectual, very smart man, Started his his foundation of his belief system was the physical world is bad and broken. And he would say, and we know it's bad and broken because there are things like death and aging and cancer and Alzheimer's and all this pain, all this hurt. And so Plato looked at the physical world and he said, the physical world is broken, it's a shadow of what it's supposed to be. And in Plato's mind, the good was the intellectual, it was the spiritual. And so what Plato said was, as long as we have bodies, we're never going to be in a good world. And what ended up happening was the church listened to Plato, listened to that philosophy, and then superimposed that onto what we believe about things like heaven, what we believe about things like this world, and God's intention for this world. But when we go back to Scripture and we look at the question— and the simple question today is, are there dogs in heaven? Right? Cat would not allow, or Tanner would not allow me to say, are there cats in heaven? Because Tanner was like, no, they're not, they're from the devil. So we're going to go with dogs, right? And are there dogs in heaven? And we look at scripture. What we're going to find is that the world's superimposing, superimposing its philosophy has actually gotten us into trouble and is taking something beautiful away from the church. So we're going to jump in, kids say the darndest things, we're going to start in Revelation. Now Revelation, end of scripture, last book of the Bible, and it's really pointing towards where is God going, what is the end goal, a lot of what happens life after death. The very end of the book, Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water This is, what heaven, this is the picture that heaven or scripture paints of what heaven, what life after death is going to look like. And it literally starts off by saying, a new heaven and a new earth. Right? Now, think about that. We live on earth. So, where would we live post death? On earth. But we're going to live on a new earth. And that new word right there in Greek is the same word that you would use not for something completely foreign, but for something unspoiled, something fresh, something alive, something not bound by things like death or tears or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This idea that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in fact, then what heaven ends up becoming is God coming to earth. Scripture says that heaven is going to descend upon this new earth. And the definition of heaven, in its most basic understanding, is where God dwells. And so when we start this conversation of what does heaven look like, what we find is it's paradise. Right? No more death, no more destruction, no more pain. And it's also where God's presence is fully present. Where God shows up, where he does life among his people, where there's no longer separation between what God is doing and what man is doing. No, they're living in harmony together. And so when we start this conversation, we have to remember, new heaven, new earth, heaven comes to earth. But then Paul gives us some good understanding of what type of body we're going to have when we die. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15. And before this, there's a debate that Paul's talking about where people are saying, does it really matter that Jesus bodily raised from the dead? What if Jesus died and instead of having a new body and came back to life that way, what if it was more of a spiritual existence? Right? So Jesus came back as maybe a ghost or whatever comes next. And Paul writes to the early church, and he says, guys, let me make this explicitly clear. If Jesus did not bodily return from the dead, Paul says, then our faith is less than worthless. He says, our faith is a waste of time if Jesus does not have a body right now. And the reason why he says that is this. He says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised in imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. And it's raised a spiritual body. When we see this, oftentimes we see the word spiritual, but we miss the word body. Because again, if you look at the Greek here, Body is soma. Soma means physical existence. It means something that actually has substance to it. And so the idea that you can either have a physical body or a spiritual body and they're on other ends of the spectrum, Paul says no. That's not what scripture teaches. That's not the God that we have, the narrative of in Genesis when God says, it is good, it is good, it is good. God is not Plato. In this, Plato got it wrong. Yes, he was right. It's a broken world that we live in. Yes, Plato was correct that there are things like cancer and death and aging and pain, and that's not supposed to be the plan, but he got the solution wrong. Because God's definition of spiritual is this. Our bodies in heaven will be imperishable, Paul writes, and filled with the glory and the power of God. In Scripture, in our narrative, in the story God has passed down to us, it starts off in Genesis 1 with God creating the world, and it's meant to be good, and it's meant to be beautiful. He looks at humanity, and he says, now you are going to be stewards of this good creation, and he says, and that is very good. And then sin comes in, and it mucks everything up. We rebel against God. We're like, actually, you know what, God? We don't need your presence down here anymore. We don't need heaven on earth anymore. We got this. Our own best thinking is totally not going to get us into trouble. And what we find, individually, every day, my own best thinking makes the worst mistakes, right? Blows up in my face. And all of a sudden, I see the effects of sin, the effects of pain, again and again and again. And that's the narrative, right? That's the story. That's our reality. And yet the story goes on where Jesus comes, and he sees this broken world. And John starts off with, he makes his dwelling among us. He pitches his tent. He does life with us. And everywhere Jesus goes, things get better. Creation goes back into alignment, right? If you're sick, you're healed. If you're hungry, you're fed, if you're broken and isolated from community, you're brought back into community. Everywhere Jesus goes, things get better. Even death cannot conquer Jesus. He shows up, and Lazarus is raised from the dead. He shows up, and the boy, the son of the widow, is brought back to life. The daughter of the centurion, again and again and again, Jesus conquers everything. And even then, we look at him, and we're like, eh! still think our ideas are better. And we kill him. That doesn't even stop. him. He raises back to bodily life and he says, now all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he goes, now I want to send you out. And then scripture goes on until we get to Revelation and all of a sudden Revelation 21, new heaven and a new earth, looks an awful lot like Genesis 1. God's presence, God's goodness, No tears, no fear. Creation restored. Because that's what God does when God's presence is there. When heaven combines with earth, that's when paradise happens. So this question of creation. Now we're going to get into that animal part. Paul writes in Romans 8, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to the sonship, the redemption of our bodies." physical substance again we see in the scripture is that we're not the only ones suffering from sin in fact when you read genesis 3 after sin comes into the picture three things get hit god says i'm cursing satan he says i'm going to curse humanity for your choice in this but then the earth gets cursed It says thorns and thistles are going to come up. Creation is going to be subjugated. It's going to be groaning because creation isn't working the way it's supposed to. And so I'm not trying to personify creation, right? I'm not talking about Mother Earth or anything else like that. But God created the world to be good. Sin came in and just mucked it all up. And creation itself started to break down where when you look at Scripture, it's frustrated just as much as we are. It's not operating the way it's supposed to. Hurricanes and volcanoes and bad farming seasons. See, creation was supposed to be a good thing. Sin broke it down. But then what we see in Scripture is that creation is waiting to be liberated. One day it's not going to be in bondage to decay. One day it's not going to break down. And so that question, well, actually, first and foremost, this is the big one when we talk about creation. God actually cares about it more than we do. Creation means created. That's where it gets its root from. And our creator God built the world to be good. And when we read through scripture, he looks and he says, wow, forests are awesome. It's good. Because he creates animals. That's good. Creates sea creatures. That's cool. Creates the otter. Yeah, platypus. Why not, right? God creates all these different things. And again, and again, and again, he says it's good. And then his kids mucked it up. And yes, if you're going to say, what does God love more? Yes, we're his children. But more doesn't mean only. God created his creation to be good, and he cares about it. He has a plan for it. He's redeeming it. And Scripture says, in one day it's going to come back in its fullness. So that question, are there animals in heaven? Yes. Because Genesis 1, Revelation 21, God's telling the same story. He created the creation and everything in it to be good. And he's not going to create something foreign when we get back up there. He's going to recreate something fresh and unspoiled that is imperishable, that is full of his glory and his power. That's the picture he paints of heaven. Now, whether or not our animals have souls, I don't know, right? I know cats have personality. I know I don't own the cat. The cat owns me. That's become very apparent, you know? And at the same time, I know God cares about my cat more than I do. And so I trust my cat in life and in death to my caring God. And ultimately, if you're going to say, where are you going to stand, Josh? I'm going to stand on the God who said I created it to be good, and I care about it more than you do. So entrust it with me. But also take care of it. Because Genesis 1 isn't just about God creating the world. It's about handing over the stewardship of that world to us. God passes off his creation to his kids and he says, I built this for you, now steward it. Care for it. Bring out the best in it. And that's part of our role as Christians. And beyond that, when Paul is done talking about the kingdom of God, talking about the resurrection, he ends with this. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ victory over death, victory over sin. Therefore, my dear brothers, Paul writes, stand firm, let nothing move you, and always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul finishes by saying, guys, we already won. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Because of Christ, because of his resurrection. Sin, death, destruction, none of it gets the last laugh. In a lot of ways, we're playing with house chips. You go to a casino and they give you house chips, it's money you didn't earn. They give it to you and go play with this. And so what we see in Scripture is God telling his children, because I won, because the war is already in the bag, leave it all on the field. You don't have to be afraid anymore don't have to worry anymore. So serve. Love. Because at the end of the day, love is going to win. In fact, love already won, right? Scripture tells us God is love, and he showed his love by coming and dying and raising back to life and saying, now I want to start putting this world back together. We talk about the now and the not yet, What that means is God is working now, and God wants to bring his kingdom, his presence, his healing to our communities, to Leander, to North Austin, to your families, to your neighborhoods, to your cul-de-sacs. God's saying, my love is inbound. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we don't say one day in the future. We pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth. Now, in the present, as it is in heaven, we're saying, God, we want your glory, we want your power to show up. But then we also have hope. Because the reality is that we still live in a world where things like cancer exist. Where things like Alzheimer's exist. Where things like addiction, and divorce, and pain. And in that, when it's too much for us, Then we put our faith in the not yet. Trusting that God says, I am going to make all things new. I'm going to resurrect the world. I'm going to resurrect your grandparents, your parents, your family, and your friends. And we trust and we stand on that, that he is going to make all things new, fresh and unspoiled. And when we have any doubt, we look to the cross. And we trust in that God who went to that length to have a relationship with us. And when we can't figure it out, when our own best thinking fails, we hold the cross, we hold to our God, and we trust in him, and we say, God, I don't have anything left, so I'm putting everything on this foundation. And what we find in Scripture is what we find in life. That foundation is solid. That foundation will not let you go. And because of that, we stand back up and get back to work. We keep bringing his love. We keep standing on his word. We keep bringing his gospel, his message of good news to our families, to our friends, and beyond. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've come before you as children who are often in rebellion. Lord, who are convinced that we're right at the expense of you, at the expense of our family, our friends. And that hurt drives us apart from you and it drives us apart from each other. And what we find in scripture is whenever you're not there, sin fills the gap. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for the times where we've allowed sin to make the decisions for our lives. It's anger or jealousy or vanity or lust or greed. Lord, We come before a God who promises forgiveness and we humbly ask. Knowing, Father, that your words are true and that you say to us that anyone you say their sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. And so, Father, Lord, we hold to that and we hold to your cross. Lord, we lift this all up in your son's precious name. Amen.